Blog Talk Radio. That is such a great song, and that was a song requested by my guest today, Steve Weitzman, who is with us today. We're going to be discussing the latest project that he was working on, and and I'm sure he's got lots of other things that he's been working on, too, as well, but we are not afraid. I want to say that we have uh, both Spencer Drake, my co-host from New York, and Steve in the studio and I wanted to let everyone know that if you'd like to listen to the show, you could listen to it live um, by tuning in, um, and you can call 347-677-1036. And also, the show will be available afterwards on iTunes and also on Blog Talk Radio under Red Velvet Media under the Indie Cafe. This is a special edition of the Indie Cafe with my wonderful co-host from New York, um, also, the chat room's open. Wanted to let everyone know that you can go into the chat room and uh, you can also listen live and or ask any questions, and I will ask Steve to um, answer those. And meanwhile, let me bring both my co-host in and Steve in, and we're going to talk about that wonderful song, and then also we're going to talk about the We Are Not Afraid that is Steve's prize little wonderful project. It's an amazing project. Um, and he created this and produced it, and there's a lot that goes behind it, and we want to explain that to everyone. There were so many notoriety people that were involved in this that Steve was able to round up and bring into this project. So both Steve and Spencer, welcome. S&S, ooh, wow. Hey, I've hey got guys. Steve and Spencer both <laughs> in the studio. All right. So here we go. 
Thanks for having me. And running and oh wait, I want to say it's Earth Day, guys. Happy Earth Day to everyone out there. Go plant a tree or whatever. Do something really wonderful for Earth Day. We'll um, do, but it'll have to wait until after this interview's over. I know, absolutely. <laughs> and I wanted to say there may be a second interview to Spencer. <laughs> there may be a second interview because Steve and I have been talking over the last couple of days and the week last week, and oh my God, this man I'm telling you is just a, a plethora of information. <laughs> Wonderful, amazing stuff. Worked with Rolling Stone. Did. Interviews with people that you just couldn't imagine. You had to be there moments explained. So first, before we get into that, I want to ask, why did you choose Do You Believe in Magic, the loving, the loving spoonful to open up with? Well, I grew up in a little tiny town in upstate New York uh, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And there were no bands, no local bands. And the first time a national act came to that area at Clarkson College, it was 11 Spoonful. And I was already a big fan because Summer in the City had already been a hit. And, you know, for $3, bought my ticket and went to see them and was blown away and hooked. And and from that point on, I believe in the magic of rock and roll. What a a great band. I do, too. First band ever. Yeah. Yeah. They 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 technically were the first band I saw. There was an opening act called the Sopwith Camel, who were also pretty good. Yeah. Remember Hello, Hello, Other Side of This Life? That uh, they covered the that that song. They didn't write it, but uh, they were they were terrific too. So then the, the Spoonful were the first major band I ever saw. That's they the first remarkable. major band. Okay, you know that brings up a really quick trivia thing I want to ask before we get into your We Are Not Afraid and about you, Spencer. What was the first concert you ever went to? Oh boy, that's everybody a good one. remembers I, their first. I concert. remember. I think it was Bob Dylan. At Woolsey Hall, um, when he was on acoustic. And, what year? Um, wow, we're talking about 1965, 66 mm-hmm. in that area. And um, I remember. You know, it's really funny. I was. I remember outside when the concert was over. <laughs> there was this big limousine, <laughs> right? And I remember uh, this. You both of you would love. He walked towards me toward the limousine, which I was right next to. And he looks at me with the sunglasses, and he had that, you know, remember the tab collar shirt with the, uh, he wore a black, he had a black jacket on, I think, a very tight black pants with those, like, Spanish leather, leather pointed black boots. And I remember him staring at me, and then he got into the limousine, right? <laughs> so I said, wow. Later, I roomed with Elliot Landy, and we babysat for his child at that time. Oh, actually, that's funny. In New York. So it's kind wow. of a strange story. But that was my first concert. It was Bob Dylan. That was yours? Um, yeah, that was my first concert. And you're gonna, both of you are going to laugh when you hear what mine was. What was it? <laughs> I was a kid. My my mom took me, the Osmond Brothers. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Shelly, uh, Holly, oh my condolences. <laughs> the Osmond Funny. Well, at least it would be only onward, upward from there. <laughs> oh no! Oh yeah! No no no! I've got I've got yeah no I've got some memorable. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned the Spectrum last night when we were talking, right. and I remember seeing um, the last um, Humble Pie concert. Say goodbye amazing to the pie. Day. Incredible! That was amazing. Wow. Yeah, oh, but wow. you know, we, we, yeah, we I went Steve to Marriott. that. Oh, in. Concert, but um, Steve, 
You yes, are a legend in your own time, and you really are. Oh, shucks. I mean, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, and, and Spencer, you can agree with me, and we're just going to yeah. let you do the interview because you have so much to talk about. And I've had fun. I know that. I know that both of us are going to have a lot of questions, and we'll interject as you go on. But um, let's first start out with um, we are not afraid, and right. all the amazing people that were in that. And we may have some callers. We're not sure if they mm-hmm. do call in. I'll let you know, and I'll uh, bring sure. them into the uh, studio. But again, that number is three four seven six seven seven one zero three six, and the chat room is open. Steve, tell us a little bit about We Are Not Afraid, and then let's segue into a little bit about you and okay. and and how you got inspired to become this amazing, uh, uh, just everything. You've done pretty much everything you could think of. Everything except perform. Well, you did perform. Yep. Go for it. Tell but us about anyway, We Are Not uh, Afraid. As far, as far as the We Are Not Afraid campaign goes, uh, like mm-hmm. like most people, I've been horrified and angry and frustrated and felt helpless, you know, watching so many violent incidents, you know, all over the world on TV, but didn't really know how to put some positivity out there until I saw several rallies, you know, in France and Denmark and Russia where people were seen holding Not Afraid signs. And I flashed back on a great song called We Are Not Afraid by a, a Nigerian reggae musician I used to manage in the early 90s named Mejek Feshek. And he played for me a few times at Tramps when I was a talent buyer there, and we recorded some of the shows. And he recorded, he did an incredible live version of that song back in 1992 as part of one of the concerts that I recorded. And that recording has been sitting on my shelf, you know, for 25, 23, 24, 25 years. I've always loved this song. No one's heard it. But as soon as I saw those Not Afraid signs, I couldn't stop thinking about that song and how perfect a song it would be to create something out of that song. I didn't know what at the time. I just knew that I needed to release it and do it for charity, and Majek was down with it. He, he was totally agreeable with it. Um, and ob- then, obviously, you need a video. Um, didn't really know what kind of video to do. Had some ideas, but my good buddy Bob Gruen, um, legendary photographer Bob Gruen, suggested that I, I just contact artists and ask them to pose holding Not Afraid signs. And he said, you know, you're not asking them to sing or play or speak right. so, so lawyers can relax. It's, it's just a photograph. And he forwarded my proposal up to Yoko, and Yoko, within a day, said, I love this, I want to participate, I want to do wow. this. And she, her assistant sent me back a really cool photo of her holding a sign that I emailed her. I, I emailed people just a, a simple black block lettering sign that they can print out, or they can get creative and make their own sign, but she had her assistant take I got the photograph immediately, and that knocked me out. I mean, here I got a project, and I'm just right. starting out, and already I got Yoko Ono. Okay. I'm in it. Wow. You know? Incredible. So mm-hmm. then, then right after that, I got George Clinton, my first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, and he was an old buddy of mine because I'd done like 12 shows with him at Tramps. I went to visit him at B.B. King's, and as soon as I started telling him about it, he said, I want, I want to do this. And, you know, then I, I thought I, it was going to be easy from that point, I didn't, but I didn't realize, you know, um, how difficult it was going to be. I didn't realize uh, that uh, what a monumental challenge it was going to be and how long it was going to take because in the beginning, when I got Yoko and George Clinton, um, that I, I thought I would get everybody, you know, and at that point, I was only going after the biggest stars on the planet, you know, Bruce, U2, Madonna, you know, the Stones, Stevie Wonder, and I got nowhere for a couple of months, and then I realized that you need a foundation, you know, first, you, you need, it's like building a house, so then I started going after, you know, and getting, you know, some medium-sized stars, 
but who were massively respected. You know, people like Steve Earle and Bruce Coburn and Ani DeFranco and the Mekons and Graham Parker and Ian Hunter, Hot Tuna, you know, Connor Oberst, Roseanne Cash, you know, musically Eric Burden, people that were really respected, you know, greatly by their peers. Mm-hmm. And that led to more and more people wanting to do it because, you know, no one really wants to be the first, although kudos go to Yoko for, for coming up and being the first. And because she was the first, I gave her the honor of being the first image that you see in the video. Oh, she deserved yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, then, you know, it led to Brian Wilson and it led to Ringo Starr and, you know, uh, Bonnie Raitt and Elvis Costello and Debbie Harry and and then, you know, amazingly, Keith Richards and Bono and 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 Springsteen and, and, and Peter Gabriel and even Robert De Niro. I, I invited Robert De Niro and he, he, he did it. I couldn't believe it. He sent me a great photo taken in his office at the Tribeca Film Festival holding an autophrase sign and sent me a great email saying, here you go. Happy to be part of it. Let me know if there's anything else Amazing. I can do for you. B- Bob. Oh, Bob. <laughs> so it wound up being like 210 artists. And the initial vision was the song, the full-length song is eight and a half minutes long. Uh, but we did a radio edit version of it, you know, in case anybody, any radio wants to play and doesn't want to play eight and a half minutes. We did a radio edit version of the song of 440. And... Um, not sure if you know who Kevin Godley is, uh, the leader mm-hmm. of, of 10CC, and he became a legendary video director. He was in the video uh, for a while and sent me his photo, and then I decided to take a shot in the dark and see if he wanted to direct it. I mean, here's a guy who's done six videos for U2 and done videos for Paul McCartney and Sting and, and, and all kinds of people, and unbelievably, he said yes. Uh, I was shocked and, and honored that he wanted to direct it, but he said he only wanted to do uh, the video from the 440, the radio edit version, and I already had 180, 190 photos, so when that version came out, I thought the photos went by a little too quickly, but it, it's, he did a brilliant job, I thought, of the first version, and Rolling Stone honored us by exclusively premiering it on their website before it went up on YouTube, so then I always had in the back of my mind to do a longer version of it uh, so the photos could be seen more clearly, and Bob Gruen helped me put that one together once I got him all the photos and gave him the running order, so he was a big help in putting the longer version together, and Bono, Bono signed on for the longer version. He missed the deadline for the first one, but he, he's in the longer version. Mm. It's great. Wow. Well, the video of, itself is pretty amazing. Don't and it's a wonderful Spence, song, I mean, too. I mean, the not, statement. Not I love the song. That's a big key because if you know you're approaching yeah, artists true. of that stature, if they don't like the song, they're not going to want to be part of it. The song has to be great, mm-hmm. and, ha- and yeah. imagine mm-hmm. trying to find a song that would appeal to all those people that they would all like. You know, people are so fussy about music, but it's a wonderful song. And so I've always where, loved it. Where, no, it where, is. Where, you, where can people see this video? Uh, well, the, our website has both the long and the short versions of it, and the website is We Are Not Afraid, no spaces. We are not afraid.net, not.com, not.org. We are not afraid.net. And you can see all the photos we have. Uh, if you hold your mouse over it, the names pop up on the website. There's a backstory on the website. And both uh, Kevin Godley's version and the longer, full length, eight and a half minute version uh, can be seen on the website. And we would love people to purchase the song if they want to help the cause. And it's to help any, any victims of violence. And it all proceeds go to the International Rescue Committee and Human Rights Watch, two wonderful charities. And either either version of the song can be bought for a dollar twenty nine, or both of them for a dollar ninety nine. That's great. Mm-hmm. And if people want to support the cause and have and, and have a bit more money, they can cut a check directly to either one of those great charities for whatever amount they want. And uh, you know, those charities for the wonderful work they do will benefit from that. We encourage people to directly contact both charities, and the way to contact both of them are on the website. That's amazing. We are not, we are not afraid. Net. Yeah. Mhm. 
Now, you know what I wanted to ask real quick? Uh, is there going to be a follow-up to that video? Are you working on anything currently for that? Well, we still have things to do with this video, but there was a thought of maybe doing a video for maybe athletes or or, or uh, mm-hmm. actors and actresses. Oh, that would be cool. I mean, yeah. this one was like, or politicians. Right. This one was 99% musicians. I had a few people who are non-musicians in the video that I wanted to include, you know, like people mm-hmm. like Danny Fields and, and Shep Gordon and, and, right. and Bob Gruen, who was in it, obviously, and, and uh, Ralph Steadman, who was the original uh, you know, Rolling Stone illustrator, and he did a three-foot-tall right. painting of Not Afraid, which I thought was amazing. Wow. Uh, with a dancing caricature. He really put a lot of effort into creating his own sign. Um, so there, there, are, there are things that we want to do uh, in addition to possibly doing another video. Uh, we'd like to partner with other organizations that represent, in, in addition to Human Rights Watch and International Rescue Committee, other organizations that that, that represent people who are whose rights are being trampled, you know, like LBGTQ rights and, and, and women's rights of choice. And I mean, if they want to use oh, this video as an inspirational rallying message, it's basically a message of just we're not afraid of anything. And we you will know, oppose- I'll tell you, Steve, I'm a member of NARAS, you know, with our, and sure. our event is going to be posted on the NARAS site. If you were a member, but you have to be a member, if you're a member of NARAS, which is a very big Grammy thing, you could post that in there on their site for members. That'd be great. Yeah. You have to be a member. Do of you have event. it, Steve, do you have it in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because I know that you're a part of that. Yeah. Well, I'm one of I'm one of the voters. I've contacted them, and there may there may be a chance that it could be shown up there. I mean, because That'd of the be fact great. That of of, yeah. of the nearly two, of around 200 musicians, 49 participants in this video are members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is astonishing. Yeah, that that alone I think would be really good. Now, remember last night when we were talking, I was saying. Do you have advocates or people in different areas? Um, maybe there could be some like areas where people could start up little chapters where they could start maybe doing some work in different towns for supporting this. Of course. That'd be great. You know, I mean, that's just something and I'm thinking of. And we also encourage people to make their own Not Afraid videos, take their own photos. They can use the song, use another mm-hmm. song, just create their own Not Afraid videos. That's a great idea. Now, they can apply now to Now, how would they get... That would be great. How would they get in touch with you, Steve, um, if somebody – I know you're on that, Facebook, that, yeah, and, and we are not afraid. Is, all the information to contact me is on, on our website. Yep. So if yeah. you would like to participate in this or have a voice or have something or anybody's listening that's in media or um, you know has an idea for anything, please reach out to Steve and make sure to get in touch with him. WeAreNotAfraid.net, correct, Steve? Yep. And you know we okay. also would love and are talking to significant artists who, who could cover the song and maybe go on shows like Jimmy Fallon and play mm-hmm. it. Um, and we're open to you know we are not afraid concert, you know anytime, uh, you know oh, and, and anything cool. in, 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 in anything from a theater to a stadium. And with right. my background as a concert promoter, uh, all I would need is a few artists and maybe some of them who are already in the video might want to do it just to pull it off. So there could be a we are not afraid concert anytime. Right. That's cool. That would be fantastic, and you just said something that I want to get into. You are, I mean, if when Steve starts getting into his own personal stuff that he's doing besides this just one project and this one really passion, I can see you're very passionate about it. You've been there and done a lot of things with Rolling Stone Magazine, with different people, concert, concerts, clubs, 
I mean, pretty much everything and anything you could think of that has to do with music and and breaking breaking news, like the Rolling Stones story you told me last night. Oh right. my God, that's a good one. Uh, I wanted yeah. to I wanted to I wanted to mention something. I I I, yeah. I really met Steve at the uh, he put on this concert, which was amazing. It was Arthur Lee who was mm-hmm. in the hospital. He put on a benefit at the beach. Right. Tell us about that. Tell us about that, Steve. Yeah, uh, we talked about that last night. In the mid-2000s, Arthur Lee, the founding Mm -hmm. member of Love, and one of my favorite artists from when I was growing up, uh, was uh, was dying of leukemia. And I had been his concert promoter since his first shows in New York City uh, from 1994. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't leave California. And I brought him to New York in 94, and I did about a dozen shows with him over the next decade. And his manager, when he was suffering from leukemia and didn't have health insurance, asked me if I would put together a benefit concert. And I said, absolutely. And I put the word out to people that, that I was doing this, and I did some reading about um, you know, who was available and on tour. And, and, and I found out that Robert Plant, amazingly, at that time was doing three Arthur Lee songs on a regular basis every night in his set. Not one, not two, but three of them. Wow. So, so I sent an email to his manager, and I'd never met Robert Plant before that night. He's one of the few people I'd, I'd ever interviewed. We'd never had any, any interaction, except that he had come to Tramps briefly to see a show, and I got to meet him briefly that night, but we didn't, I'd never interviewed him or anything. So I sent an email to his manager in London inviting him to be part of it, and Nic- Nicola Powell, and she sent back a note saying, uh, you know, within the next day, she said, I've spoken to Robert about the tribute, and he would definitely like to be involved, and he said he'd sing with anybody. Amazing. So there I had Robert Plant. So I called her, and she said he's going to want to talk to you about the details and, and uh, prospective dates, you know. So a couple of days later, I get a phone call from Robert Plant, and we picked a date that, that, was, that worked for both of us. Um, and I, I told them uh, some of the other artists that were doing it and that people were picking their favorite Arthur Lee and love songs to do and wanted to know which ones he wanted to do. And obviously of the three that he was doing he wanted live, he wanted to do those three. He was doing Bummer in the Summer. Uh, he was doing A House is Not a Motel. Uh, and he was doing Seven and Seven Is. So those were three absolutely mm-hmm. that he wanted to do. And then he chose to do Old Man, which he'd never sung before that night. And he did an incredible cover of, of uh, Hey Joe, which is a song that Arthur was one of many artists that covered it, along with The Leaves and Jimi Hendrix and, and The Birds. You know, um, It's a song from the, from the late 50s written by Billy Roberts. That's where Hendrix heard it because he's from Seattle. So he... And then uh, I was telling him that you know Ian Hunter was going to do his own song, like a short set of his own material. And then when I told Robert that, he said, he said, does that mean that we're not all just doing Arthur Lee songs? I said, no, you, you know. He said, so that means I can do some old Led Zeppelin songs? <laughs> I mean, That's he asking, amazing. He's asking me if he can do some old. And I said, yeah, you can do some old Led Zeppelin songs. <laughs> Can't believe he's asking permission to do some old Led Zeppelin songs. That's great. And he, he wound up doing. You know, he went up doing in the evening. What is and what should never be, ramble on and thank you. Wow, yeah. Unreal. Yep. And Steve, Unreal. tell them how and, he didn't want to take any of the funds away from well, Arthur. Well, so initially when I was, when I was discussing with him, I said, obviously you're really comfortable with your touring band. I'll bring your whole band over. Uh, you can play with your band. He said, no, no, no. He said, that would cost way too much money. I, you know, uh, I want you know, as much money as possible to go to Arthur. Uh, he, he said, you put a band together for me. Imagine that. Oh. I mean, Robert Plant's telling me to put a band together for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then I said, you know, we're, we're covering also airfares uh, and hotels, so we can take that at the ticket sales. Uh, and he said, no. He said, I want all, all the money possible to Arthur. I, I'll cover that myself. 
So he spent $10,000 out of his own pocket to come and do this, this benefit. I mean, a lot of people do benefits, but how many people spend $10,000, right. right. $7,000 for a first-class airline ticket and 3500 for five nights at the Soho Suites Hotel? He wouldn't allow us to reimburse him for that. And when he said, you know, you put a band together for me, I was in a bit of a shock thing. Who, who should I suggest? I mean, who could I call? And the first thing that hit me was, how about Ian Hunter? You know, he's, he already said he wanted to do it, uh, be on the bill. And uh, they, I knew he was a contemporary of Roberts uh, from England back in the 60s. And he was living in New York with a, with a great band that had Steve Holly on drums, who was Wings' drummer for like several years, and a great guitarist, Andy York. So when I suggested that to Robert, he said, absolutely perfect, great. So we had Ian Hunter and his band backing Robert, and, and uh, it was remarkable to hear him with those guys. And, they'd and never, you had Ryan Adams, amazing. too, I remember. Brian, yeah, Ryan Adams, Adams was on the bill, right? and Nils Lofgren, and Yola Tango, and you know, and, and they all did great Arthur Lee songs, and Ryan did his own songs as well, and, and Ian Hunter did a set of his own stuff. Mm-hmm. And Robert Incredible also night. did some really cool things other than those songs. He did some really great covers of For What It's Worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the Ever- Everly Brothers classic, When Will I Be Loved. It was a duet with Ian Hunter. And he did... Wow. And he did, you know, Can't Help Falling in Love that made, was made popular by Elvis Presley. Yeah. And, he, and he, channeled Elvis on, he channeled Elvis on that song. Wow. Oh, that's so, great. Is, that it on, is, that on, is that available to hear anywhere? Uh, I no, wonder if anyone filmed it. No, oh, no, wow. no. Well, we wanted to film it and record it, but because it was a union hall, the Beacon, and we wanted all the money to go to Arthur, the Beacon Theater wanted $20,000 sure. from us. Jeez. Oh, that's crazy. And, you know, yeah. maybe it might have made it back in, in, the, in the years in the future, but sure. Arthur was dying of leukemia at that time, and, and, and he wound up dying six weeks after the show, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Um, that's crazy. We, he was I in know. a hospital in Memphis, and we wanted him to come up and at least take a bow or maybe sing on a couple songs. He was uh-huh. too sick to even get out of the hospital, but he, he, his manager told me he got to read the reviews and see all the photos and know all about it. And oh, it, 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 he yeah. really loved oh. the, the show and, and, and was so thankful that, that it came together and couldn't believe that you know, Robert Plant was part of it. And it really uh-huh. cheered him up a lot, but he never got yeah. out of the hospital, and he died six weeks after, and I was devastated to hear the news yeah. that he passed away. I sure. remember but it did, you but it telling did raise me that. Fifty grand, you know, for his medical expenses. But I, I couldn't see laying out twenty grand like that night and taking it away from Arthur just Mm-mm. to pay for the rights to film that's it right. and record it. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that was really yeah. a major disappointment. We, they wouldn't waive it, even though it was a charity. They, they were, they, they, you know, didn't budge. I understand wow. that. You know. Yeah. So. No. Now you know. I know that you've done a lot of promoting and owned, you know, concerts and. Venues like Tramps and well, I never owned any. I never wanted to be the owner. Uh, I was the talent no. buyer, uh, and I was the yep. promoter. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, never wanted to own a club because that way you got to deal with Let's... licenses and lawsuits and and no, fire totally. marshals and people like that. I just wanted to deal with the music. If it had, if it didn't have to do with the music, I didn't want to do with it. But if, if it was the music, I I, I did it. I dealt with it. Mm-hmm. You know so. what I think would be really fun to do right now would be to talk about who your mentor was that got, that got you into what you're do what what you do and how it happened and then segue into your time at Rolling Stone and um all the when other was, different when I was growing up great, in upstate things. New York you know I, I, I was mm-hmm. kind of like chronologically blessed I I, I was 14 in 1964 during the British invasion, mm-hmm. the, the, the perfect age you know, to appreciate the Beatles, the Kinks, the Stones, the Who, the Animals, you know. Uh, and then when I went to college, 18 and 1968, to be old enough to experience all those bands, uh, you know, all, the psychedelic era, and go to see all, the, all those concerts in Philly. I mean, I, I, you know, I 
didn't have any money, so I couldn't afford all the albums I wanted and, and the concerts, but I'd met this guy who was reviewing albums for the college paper, and he told me that they were looking for a concert reviewer, and I couldn't believe that he was getting all of his albums for nothing, every record for free. That blew my mind. And I said, wow. i gotta, I got to have some of this. So I couldn't write, you know, but I knew a lot about music because I was a sponge when I was in high school. I listened to the radio all night long, uh, and, and uh, back then you could hear everything on the radio. So the paper said they were sending like a few people to review a concert of their choice and they would pick the one they liked the best and because I couldn't write very well um, you know I knew if I wrote anything positive about somebody it would be in, you know it would look really embarrassing and 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 lame so I decided to go see a band I hated rip them to shreds and make it funny and I went to see the Iron Butterfly <laughs> oh, I couldn't stand. Oh wow <laughs> and I ripped them to You're shreds funny they ripped them to shreds <laughs> remember that and it was an opening act a really great local band called Sweet Nothing Great band from Philly. I don't think they ever did made a record, but I titled the article "Butterflies Nothing, Nothing's Everything," <laughs> and, 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 and they printed my review. So that's great. So I, I sent I, I, after a few reviews, I sent it off to record companies, and I said, "Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm writing about music. Send me records," and they all started sending me records. And, and, you know, I wrote for free for several years, and then wrote for underground papers like the Drummer in Philadelphia, and the Plain Dealer, and the Daily Planet. And then I got a lucky break when. When uh, I interviewed Ravi Shankar for the for the Daily Planet and the Philadelphia Bulletin, which was a major city daily paper, they missed their interview with Ravi because right after I interviewed him, he had to fly back to India for a family emergency, and I heard they were looking for one, and I called him up and I said, I heard you want a Ravi Shankar interview, and they said absolutely, so I, I I gave it to him and they printed it in the Sunday edition. From that point on, I was like, you know, it's still in college, but I was a critic for the Philadelphia Bulletin, which was like the New York Times wow. of Philadelphia. That's great. You know, getting to interview, you know, Jerry Garcia and, and, and all these, everybody and, and going to all these concerts. And um, so I wrote for the Bulletin for, for about a year, um, but I've still read Rolling Stone. And my favorite writer was Ben Fontores. Uh, oh, he's great. He, he was, was, you know, fa- senior, senior writer. And he yeah. kind, of, kind of pioneered uh, like a mini novel sort of music journalism aspect where if, if he wrote about someone like Carlos Santana, he would go to Mexico and interview Carlos's parents. And once you read the story, you, you really felt you knew Carlos Santana. And I wanted to do stories like that, so I kind of stole his style. You know, he was my writing idol. I picked wow. apart his pieces and saw how he got from point A to point B to point C and patterned everything I did after him. He was my writing idol. And so in one night in 74, when Dylan came to Philly with the band, his first shows live in seven years, uh, it was my job to go review the show. And that afternoon I wrote a, you know, they, the Bolton published a preview article on Dylan that I'd written to get people interested in going to see him and uh, uh, welcoming him to Philadelphia, and that appeared in the paper that day. So I go to the concert that night, and I'm sitting in the, in the press box, and we knew the same people every night. It was the same writers and DJs, and this guy sits down to my right, who I didn't recognize. He was a Chinese-American guy with wire and glasses, and he was taking a million notes, and since I didn't recognize him, I thought he was some unimportant writer for, like, the Woodbury Shopper's Guide, and nobody, <laughs> I, I felt sorry for nobody would read his article. And I kind of jabbed him in the side in a little kind of a condescending way, and I said, you got to cover this story for somebody? And he looked up from his notes, and he goes, yeah, I'm, ben F- I'm, I'm covering the whole Dylan tour for Rolling Stone. And I said, oh, <laughs> Ben Because <laughs> everybody knew he was the only writer that Dylan allowed to tour with him. Wow. And I, I said, you're, you're Ben Fontoris. And, you know, and he said, yeah, who are you? And I said, I'm Steve Weissman. I write for the Bulletin. I was almost embarrassed, you know, at, at, at thinking that he wasn't important. And, and when I told him that I write for the Bulletin, he said, oh, I read your Dylan article at the airport. I really like the way you write. How come you never called to write for Rolling Stone? <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Well, I said, you know, you know, you're in San Francisco. I'm in Philadelphia. I'm into immediate gratification. I like writing an article, bringing it down to my editor's office, having him read it and pat me on the back and tell me what a great story it is. You don't get that long distance. <laughs> so he says, I'll tell you what. He said, I'm, I'm going to be on tour with Dylan for another week and a half. I want you to call me in two weeks and tell me who you want to do your first article in Rolling Stone on. Wow. And I thought, wow. That's heavy. That's, that's a heavy responsibility. So I drove him back to his hotel, and we said goodbye. And for the next couple of weeks, I was thinking, who could I come up with uh, for, for an idea for my first story? The, the worst-case scenario would be to suggest somebody, and, he, and he'll have him go, oh, that's lame, we're not interested. I had to come up with something really cool. And there was this guy I'd been seeing for the, like the last year named Leon Redbone. You know Leon? Oh, yeah. Great. He yeah. like 1920s ragtime jazz and blues mm-hmm. on the guitar. But he had not yet made a record at that point, but he was like a favorite opening act for people like Bonnie Raitt and Chris Smither and, and, and John Prine who re- and John Hammond. They requested him as their opening because he, he was so cool, and I loved him. And uh, so I called Ben Fontorius, and, and, and he says, do you, want to, do you know who you wanted to hear for a story for Rolling Stone? And I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to do on this guy named Leon Redbone. Do you know anything about him? And he said, I don't know anything about him, but in my interview with Dylan last week, Dylan raved about him to me. And when people see what Dylan said about the guy in the next issue, everyone's going to want to know who this guy is, so get on it immediately. <laughs> I mean, how fortunate wow. to suggest an article about a guy that Dylan had just told Oh, this told is ben a great story. And Ben, and ben this had is a great heard of, story. Right? So then he said, he said, find out if he's going to be in your area. Uh-uh. You know? Because oh I wanted it immediately. So I called Leon's manager, Beryl Handler, and she said he, in the next three months he wasn't going to be any closer than Boston, which is 450 miles away. And, and uh, I knew if I called Ben and told him the truth that he would say, oh, we'll just get our Boston writer to do it then. We'll get John Landau or Jonathan Cott you know, to do the story, and I would lose the assignment. So I called Ben, and I lied when he said, is he going to be in your area? I said, I got it covered. And I bought a plane <laughs> ticket out of my own, well, of my own money, figuring I could, I'd spend more money on the ticket than I'd get paid for the article. Spent 70 bucks on a round-trip plane ticket to Boston and went and interviewed Leon. And Ben's parting uh, you know, instructions to me were, give me 1,200 words on Leon, which is the length of an introductory feature in Rolling Stone, the likes of which they would do like maybe a dozen in every issue. Uh, and uh, that's like four pages typed. And I've never had a problem following that instruction. You know, I can write to, to, to length. But for some reason, that night when I started writing my article on Leon, and I called Bonnie Raitt and other people to tell me great Leon Redbone stories, I couldn't stop writing until I'd written 4,500 words. <laughs> and I knew he only asked me for 1,200. This is funny. And you cannot oh, give Rolling Stone magazine 4,500 words if they're expecting 1,200. <laughs> They'll never use you again. <laughs> but I also I knew that it. I couldn't edit out five words, and it was the best thing I'd ever written. So oh. I, I fought with myself for a whole day. I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't cut it down, and I couldn't. you can't send it like that. Yeah. So what do you do? You know, so, so I decided to send it the way it was with a letter of apology. To Ben, and I said, "Dear Ben, you know I know you only asked me for 1,200 words on Leon, but I just wanted to show you what I got. If you still feel you got to edit it down to that amount, I'm sorry for the massive editing job I've given you." And I signed Steve we- signed to Steve Weitzman and, and said, "Thanks." I didn't hear from him for a month, and in the publishing <laughs> business, no news is bad news. If you write an right. article and a magazine doesn't publish it, they're not going to call you and tell you they're not going to publish it. They right. just don't call you, and they you can't call them. And I knew I'd blown it. A month goes by, you know, no, call, no phone call, no nothing. And then uh, about a month later, a phone call comes like midnight. It was a time difference, you know, because they were on the West Coast. And sometimes connections weren't the greatest, and I could barely hear the guy. And he sounded pissed. And he goes, Steve Weitzman? I go, yeah. He goes, this is Ben Fontorius. You know that Leon Redbone article you sent us? I was thoroughly prepared to get chewed out. 
And he said, I just want to let you know that it's made the rounds here. Every editor has read it. We're going to run the entire article as is, and we're making it the lead feature of the issue. And congratulations, no first-time no first writer for Rolling Stone has ever had the lead feature of the issue. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Wow. So they ran Tell them why. Tell them why. Color photo. <laughs> and uh, from that point on, you know, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted with Ben. And, uh, yeah. you know, get, and I covered Billy Joel's first article in Rolling Stone and a few other people. Jeez. Um, and then, Did we uh, talk about the Rolling Stones thing? Oh, that, yeah, that's after I, I moved to New York. Oh, uh, a few months, okay. A, a few months after I was writing for Rolling Stone, I, I became, at that point, their writer in Philly. They had one writer in every every town, so anything local that was important, they let me cover. Um, and then I moved to New York that fall because they were moving their office from San Francisco to New York, and I knew that they needed more writers, and, and, and if I moved here, they'd give me more work. So I moved to New York not knowing anybody. Um, and I'd only been with the magazine for, like, less than a year. Um, and if you remember in 75, the Stones were gearing up for their once-every-three-year tour, 69, 72, 75. Um, and when they would do that, they would not talk to the media because they had so much preparation to do. And, and on the 75 tour, they had an extra burden of having to audition guitar players because Mick Taylor quit at the last minute, gave no notice, and left them in a lurch. And they were auditioning, not only gearing up for tour, but auditioning for guitar players. Uh, the rumor was it was going to be Ronnie Wood. No one knew. They were also talking to people like Wayne Perkins, and they wanted Lowell George and Little Feet, but Lowell George turned them down flat. Imagine that. Well, Lowell that's was crazy. Really their, was, was their first choice, but he wouldn't even go audition. He wouldn't even go jam with them. He was insulted that they even wow. asked him because that meant that Little Feet would have to break up. And he said, "I can't do that to these guys. You know, if I leave Little Feet, there is no right. more Little Feet." He right. said, "Screw, screw the Stones." <laughs> so. Um, so at, at that time, also, there were lawsuits uh, that Alan Klein, who used to manage the Beatles and the Stones, um, going back between for years between the Stones and Alan Klein. Alan Klein was claiming that the Stones owed him millions of dollars in back royalties. The Stones uh, claimed that, that uh, 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 Alan Klein um, – no, no, Stones claimed that Alan Klein owed them millions in back royalties, and Klein claims that, that, that he was owed you know, millions in expenses – um, so there was a settlement um, that particular time, right during, during the plans for that tour. And imagine this scenario. The day that there was a settlement, Alan Klein, who, who would never do interviews, he didn't talk to the press, he calls his personal assistant into the privacy of his office, a guy named Al Steckler, and he says, hey, hey, Al, guess what? We just settled our lawsuit this morning with the Stones. We've got to pay them a million dollars in back royalties. We get the rights to release four albums, one of which became Metamorphosis. Wow which was like the best of the B-sides that the Stones would never have put out. But, you know, it was tolerable to them to have it be released. And then Rock and Roll Circus and, and, and another album, Greatest Hits Package for TV. He told them all the specifics of the deal, everything, in the privacy of his office. But what he didn't tell him was not to tell anybody else. So Al Steckler, Alan Klein's right-hand manager, gets on the phone. He calls his cousin, <laughs> Denny, Sum Denny Sumack, who was a DJ in Philadelphia, who's my best friend, oh one of my, my best God. friends. <laughs> and he tells Denny everything, right? Oh and God. Denny knew that I was a writer for Rolling Stone, so within two minutes, Denny calls me and says, hey, guess what? Al Steckler just called me, and he gave me all the details of the settlement. <laughs> so within ten minutes, I had all the information <laughs> that Alan Klein had just told Al Steckler in the private of his office. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But what do, you do with, what do you do with it, right? So I'm a reporter, so I figured, what the hell? I'll, I'll call Alan Klein. I know that he doesn't talk to the media, but what, the, what do I got to lose? So I called right. Alan Klein, and his secretary answered, and I said, I'm a reporter for Rolling Stone. I'm doing a story on the settlement of the lawsuit between Alan Klein and, and the Stones, and I'd like to interview Alan about it. And you know, she knew that it just happened that day, so uh, and because I told her that I knew about it, too, she put me right through to Alan Klein. And he goes, who is this? 
I said, this is Steve Weitzman. I'm a writer for Rolling Stone. He slammed the phone down. Oh, my God. You know, I said, I'm doing a story on the settlement of the lawsuit. He slammed the phone down. So I called his secretary back, and I said, we just got accidentally disconnected. Put me through to Alan Klein again. <laughs> <laughs> so she puts me through to Alan Klein again, and I said, this is Steve Weitzman for Rolling Stone. I'm doing stories. <laughs> and he, he hung up the phone again on me immediately. And I called her back a third time. I said, I just got accidentally disconnected a third time. Again, please put me through to Alan Klein. We have a bad connection here. Yeah. So before, he had a, before he had a chance to say anything, I said, Alan, please listen to me carefully. I've got enough information here, whether you talk to me or not, for a story. It's going in Rolling Stone. Whether you, you know, There's nothing you can do to prevent it from going in Rolling Stone. <laughs> so can we talk about this civilly? And he, he agreed. So I turned the tape recorder on. It was a phone interview. I taped it. And then what do you do with that? Well, you call the Stones to try to get an interview, mm. even though they're not talking to the press. So I called Jane Rose and... She was the acting manager of the Stones at the time and, and, and Keith's personal manager and Mick's personal manager. And, and, and uh, so I called Jane and told her that I'd just interviewed Alan Klein and, and wanted to talk and thought that because it was so one-sided, he painted himself to be the white knight, painted the Stones to be the evil bastards. I told her that I thought that Mick deserved the opportunity to present his side of the story. So she said, let me call you back. She, said, I, and she called back. She said, I just talked to Mick. He said, if you've already interviewed Alan Klein and we need proof that you've interviewed Alan Klein – He'll do an interview with you, but you have to prove that you've already interviewed Alan Klein. Mm-hmm. So I, I walked a cassette of it across the street. They were just across the street from me, and, and she called back an hour later, and she said, you're on at 8 o'clock tonight with Mick Jagger. <laughs> wow. So she said, you know, but here's some stipulations here because we're really busy. She said, because it's a legal interview, I, we need all your questions in advance because he's going to consult with his lawyers, want to make sure he's informed, he can answer all your questions, want to know what he can say, what he can't say. And I never used to, I never would go along with that in other interviews, but I understood why they wanted to in that scenario. I always like to surprise people, but I, I agreed that first time, and it's the only time I ever let someone see my questions in advance. So I gave her all the questions in advance for, for that interview, and she said, you can't ask him anything that's not according to the lawsuit um, and, uh, or, on, or on this approved list, and if you do, the interview will end at that point. We're very busy, but he will talk to you about the lawsuit. So, I, so at that point, when I knew I was getting it, I called my editor at Rolling Stone, uh, Chet Flippo, who was a wonderful editor at the time, um, and I uh, said, hey, Chet, guess who I'm getting an interview tonight at 8 o'clock? And I hadn't been with the magazine for very long. I was just a kid, you know. And he said, who? I said, Mick Jagger. And he said, come <laughs> on, man. Don't waste my time. You know, don't <laughs> screw around. I'm really busy here. You know, get serious. So I said, Chet, I'm really interviewing Mick Jagger at 8 o'clock tonight. And he said, come on. Don't waste my time. Stop jerking me around. I said, Chet, listen carefully. I'm interviewing Mick Jagger at 8 o'clock tonight. Tell me you don't want it, and I'll give it to Cream Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you're serious, aren't you? And I said, yes, I'm serious. He said, how the hell did you pull that off? I told him, he said, that's incredible. He said, we're desperately trying to get him to talk about the auditions and the guitar search. There was supposed to be a press conference in the next day or so, but they weren't talking about it with anybody. But Rolling Stone's deadline was that day for their next issue. He said, please try to get him to talk about, you know, the auditions. And I said, I can't. I'm not allowed. And he said, you know, I said, if I can, if I, I've been told that if I ask anything that's not on the approved list of questions and they all have to be pertaining to the lawsuit, then that's where the interview was over. So he said, I'll tell you what, see if you're getting on with the guy, if you're developing a rapport, and only after you've asked him everything you need to ask him about the lawsuit, try to slip in some questions about the auditions and how they're going and who it might be. He said, what do you got to lose? So I said, fine. So that was a great suggestion because if you ever hear the tape, you'll hear at some point after I asked the last question about the lawsuit, I said uh, to Mick, I'm also doing a story on on the auditions. I heard a rumor it's going to be Ronnie Wood. Uh, And then he says, you can talk to Ronnie. He'll be here tomorrow. So that that kind of, you know, (laughs) I said, well, can I talk to you about it right here, right now? 
And he said, sure. And I figured I'd be able to get him to talk to him. And I had all those questions prepared in advance. Um, and he was great um, and answered all those questions. And uh, by the way, one question that I asked him and his answer shows why the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Just a simple question and his answer. And that question was, what characteristics had you been looking for in a guitarist? And Mick Jagger's quote was, I wanted someone that was easy to get on with, you know, and that was a good player, that was used to playing on stage. He said it's, it's quite a lot to ask someone to come into a big American tour with a band like the Stones. And then he said, not that I think the Stones are any really big deal, but it tends to be a bit of a paralyzing experience for some people. And the way he said that, he said it with no ego, because he didn't think being in the Stones is any really big deal. I mean, he knows he can't shine Muddy Water's shoes or, or, or you know, John Lee Hooker's shoes or Chuck Berry's shoes. They're a bar band who happen to write their own songs. And he had, they have no musical ego. And that's the key to the Stones. You can have personal ego, but your music can't have any ego and, because then it gets ruined immediately. And that's why the Stones have always been, in my mind, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. They have no, no musical mm-hmm. ego. And when, when Jagger said to me, not that I think the Stones are any really big deal, you know, he meant it. He wasn't jerking me off. He wasn't playing around. He wasn't kidding me. He said it mm-hmm. with all uh, honesty. He was confused. He didn't get why people thought they were the, the greatest band of all time or, 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 you know, rock royalty. Because they came from an era where they were a cover band. And their idols were Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon and Howlin' Wolf and, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson and, and, and Chuck Berry and people like that. So that blew my mind when he said that. So That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. So when I wrote the story... Um, you know, uh, I only had like an hour to get it over to Rolling Stone, and, and uh, they were sending it out that night. And a, a few hours before I got the interview, they called me and they said, we want to put it on the cover. This was at 6 o'clock, and I told them the interview was 8 o'clock. They said, we want to put it on the cover. Um, and I said, well, you can't because I haven't done the interview yet. Well, I said, what if he cancels? So they, they, sent, they put Phoebe Snow on the cover, and she got the cover, which was great because I didn't get the interview in on time. And, uh, and then an hour later, they called back, and they said, well, we want to put a table contents page. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I haven't done it yet. So if you, if you saw that issue... There's nothing that even hints at an interview with Mick Jagger in the issue, but it's in there. I just got it in under the deadline, but Phoebe Snow wow. was on the cover of that issue. Wow. And I'm so happy she got it because it made a big deal in her career. She had done Poetry Man at the time, and it was a huge get for her to get a cover of Rolling Stone. Right, right. That's amazing. Great story. Great story. Great story. Yep. No, that's great. About the Rolling Stones. Um, you have another really cool one that you told me about. Um you want to talk about your Janis Joplin <laughs> interview? <laughs> well, she she was the first artist that I ever met. Uh, I was like 18, and she was playing at the Philadelphia uh, Electric Factory, um, and I was just starting out to write reviews, and I just wandered into her dressing room. Um, there was no security, and if you were polite and intelligent, you could talk to anybody back then. So I asked her about you know blues and Big Brother and the Holding Company and but you know she had other ideas in mind you know the, you know the band she was lonely and the band was the band had left there was nobody but the two of us and I, you know here i was a you know an 18 year old you know virgin and and she's like rubbing my crotch during the interview and licking her lips and saying <laughs> come back to my hotel room with me <laughs> and i'm going oh my god Janice Dublin wants to sleep with me and i and I, I just i ran away from her that you know i tricked up my notes dropped and picked them up dropped them i just i, I left her there <laughs> so you know i wasn't ready for that but she certainly was fun to talk to. 
But I, I regret that not going is, back to the hotel and hanging out with her. Maybe, you know, we could have talked more, but, not, you know. Uh, you, would, uh, let me ask you a question, Steve. Did you did you get involved with, like, uh, uh, Big Brother or uh, Jefferson Airplane in that era? I, I only reviewed them, but I wound up getting yep. four of them for my video. Wow. Marty Balin, Paul Kanner, and Yorman, Jack Mahatoon are all in the video. All right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I, thought, I thought we were going to get Grace, but we didn't get Grace, unfortunately. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've had some trip. amazing experiences like, getting to go on tour with bands. And, um, I, I think I did the first tour story ever with the police. I was the wow. first writer to, to go on tour with them when, when they didn't have a record out in America. I got a call from from my editor in London uh, saying there's a, the, a great band in New York. Go check them out. They're playing CBGBs. So it was a Sunday night. There were eight people in the audience. They only had an import single out, and I was blown away by their show. And they, they started with Can't Stand Using You and Losing You, and then Roxanne, I fell off the chair and went backstage to find out what they were all about and said, man, I want to do the first story in America on you guys. Can I go with you, you know, next few dates? And they said, yeah, we're going to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, you know, and are you welcome to come? So I hopped in their beat-up Dodge van, and just the three of them and, and me and their, and their driver, Dave. And they were playing to, you know, 20 people a night. And it was incredible to see them at that stage of their career. And one remarkable experience was when we were heading into Cleveland, and they had the best radio station around, MMS. Um, when we were in the van, it was always whoever was sitting in the front seat, passenger side, to make sure we had the best music to listen to in the car. And Sting was in the front seat, but he had dozed off when the station we were listening to had changed from rock and roll to easy listening. They were playing a bad Barry Manilow song. And he, and he let it go a little too long. And we were screaming at him, change the goddamn station, will you? And he's fiddling on it. He wakes up, and he, he finds WMMS the first second that they started Roxanne, and they'd never heard themselves on American radio before. And they started really? screaming oh. and singing along with the song and playing percussion instruments on their knees. They couldn't believe they were getting to hear themselves on a radio in, Amer- in America. They're getting to hear Roxanne on, on WMMS in Cleveland. That's incredible. Yep. What, what a fun you know, scene to observe. So it, it seems like Steve amazing. Weitzman could write a book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, could, you know, there might be a book. But, you should. You should. You, know, you definitely right? should. With all the stories you have, oh and my they're God. real. They're like, you cool. have to be there moments. I mean, I, I, like I say, we this, said. I say this amazing story. You know, Ring, Ringo's in, in the video, and I'm honored that he's part of the video. But I'm glad that he doesn't know that about 40 years ago, I printed an article that actually made a big deal back then that he probably forgot about that didn't shed him in the best light. Uh, in 1978, I was hanging out with Bernard Purdy. You know Bernard Purdy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. The greatest soul drummer of all time, Aretha's drummer, legendary yeah, drummer. And he was a little tipsy, and he, was kind of, and he told me this amazing story, hanging out at the bar at McKell's, that he was the drummer on the first three Beatle albums, not Ringo Starr. Really? On 21 songs of the first three Beatle albums. He told, he told me this last night. I was and, and he, flipping out when he told and he, me that. And he told me that in addition oh to getting God. his session Thanks. fee, that the manager of the Beatles, Brian Epstein, paid him $10,000 extra to keep his mouth shut. Because they didn't want like anyone that. to know that they overdubbed the drumming on the first three Beatles albums, on 21 songs. And one of them he Isn't referred to crazy? As, as Yeah, 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 which was obviously She Loved You. She Loves You. So I, I said to Bernard, I, I'm going to call you uh, tomorrow. Um, and I want you to repeat everything you said to, said to me in a tape recorder. And he, and he did. And, and his wow. quote was, I overdubbed the drumming on 21 tracks of the first three Beatle albums. They paid me a lot of money to keep my mouth shut, but it's been 10 years. I guess I can talk about it now. And this is in 1978. So I, I called Paul McCartney's people, and I got a quote from Paul McCartney, which was pretty telling. And the quote from Paul McCartney was, 
Ringo got blown off the first sessions we ever did, the Love Me Do sessions. Ringo was asked to leave by George Martin. A fellow <laughs> named Andy White was brought in for the sessions. It's weird, isn't it? And then when I called oh. to get a comment from wow. Ringo, uh, the, the response story. I got back from Ringo's people was, Ringo wishes not to comment on your story. Mm. But incredibly, Bernard Purdy claims that he was the drummer on, the fir- on 21 tracks of the first three Beatle albums. Jeez, that's crazy. And so the title of my article was The Real Fifth Beatle with a question mark. Huh. So the See, that, album that's Meet, crazy. The album Meet the Beatles has him on it, right? Meet the Beatles. He's on it, but Bernard overdubbed the drumming on some of the right, songs. Right, exactly. Right, right. That's incredible. That is yeah, incredible. because they didn't feel that it was up to up to snuff. Obviously, Ringo's playing. Jeez, unbelievable story. Yep. You know, you when he told me that last right, night, I was like, he's got it. Oh, definitely. When he told me this last night, I was like, oh no. my god. So what did they do when they played? What did they do when they played on like the Ed Sullivan show or well, obviously whatever? Well, didn't it, do the drumming in the Ed Sullivan show. They, you know, yeah. Ringo was Ringo was obviously there. I mean, he, Ringo was was okay. He he became quite a good drummer, but in the beginning he wasn't the best. And the Beatles wanted the best, and they got the best. Bernard Purdy is a legend. He's incredible. Right, right. You know those those Aretha Franklin albums that he was on every single one of them, all the Atlantic albums. Oh my God. Did you write for Cream Magazine, by the way? I wrote for a real for a little bit, not much, yeah. but you know they were not in New York; they were in in Detroit. So I was concentrating on publications in New York. I was editor of a magazine called Gig for like three or four years, where we got to use a lot of Rolling Stone writers, um, because Rolling Stone didn't give us really enough work. We, if we were lucky, we got an article every, you know, three issues or so. But that didn't pay the bills. So I was editor of, yeah. of a magazine called Gig, and, and utilized gave Rolling Stone writers a lot of extra work. And that's a magazine that I interviewed Jerry Garcia for, by the way. When, really? Uh, when Jerry Garcia was having, they were having a feud with Rolling Stone for several years. The, the Dead wouldn't talk to Rolling Stone from '75 to '78 because they were pissed at a bad review they got. So I got an interview with Jerry Garcia that Great. Rolling Stone couldn't get. Uh, and then it wound up being in a book that uh, Rolling Stone put out uh, um, right after Jerry died called Garcia by the Editors of Rolling Stone. And if you, if, if you look at that book, it's, you know, it's, it's in the book, and it, but it's the only interview with, with Jerry Garcia never published originally in Rolling Stone. Everything mm. else was in Rolling and Stone. But they told me they really wanted that one because it filled the gap perfectly between 75 and 78 when they had nothing uh, from wow. the band because the band was pissed at Rolling Stone for, over a bad review. Wow. But it's a great book. That's incredible. Remarkable That's, interview. He was just yeah. the best to interview. Mm. I really miss him. I'd interviewed Bob you know, twice before that, but but uh, that was my interview with Jerry. And it was on April Fool's Day, 1976. Wow. You know, I wanted to ask you, um, what are you currently working on right now besides promoting the We Are Not Afraid? Well, because are you currently of this working project, on any- we, we've got mm-hmm. a great distribution deal now with Red Eye, and they are so in love with this project. Mm-hmm. They want anything else I can give them. Mm. So, you know, other projects that I, I want to work on are, are – uh, um, releasing some live shows that I have to benefit um, families of artists who have passed away. I want to do a lot of charity things and, and concentrate mostly on benefits right now. And I've got great recordings by people like Chuck Brown who died and Snooks Eaglin who died. And, and uh, you know, I want to give them, make those recordings available to their families. Um, and also, it's, a, it's a, a great vehicle to release CDs uh, of, of major label artists that are no longer in print. And I've talked to some labels, and they've said that anything in their catalog that has never been put on CD before, and that's a lot of stuff, or is currently out of print, they will fast-track the clearances mm-hmm. for me. And I've got a long list of things that I'm frustrated that I can't get on CD that should be available. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, mm-hmm. I want to do you know, physical CDs uh, and vinyl, 
But, you know, if financial constraints, you know, merit it, it might just be downloads. But uh, I've also got some, you know, the, uh, for example, the holy grail of Neville Brothers recordings, a, a triple live set, like two and a half hours long from when they were at the Lone Star in the mid-'80s. And they were, I, I think, one of the best bands in the world at the time. Uh, and we captured them uh, in all their glory that night. And all the brothers have heard it. They want it released. And they've made a few albums, but never one that had their best song, uh, Fire on the Bayou. And I'd like to put that out. That, that would be a triple live set. It's the holy grail of live Neville Brothers. Wow. And they've always been one of my favorite bands. That's incre- yeah, they're great. Wow. Astonishing set. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a Janis Joplin recording that I discovered and wrote about for Rolling Stone, uh, which is her first high-quality recording. Um, We're going to talk about it. In, in 1962, she performed at a little club in, in San Francisco, and it was recorded, and a tape has been like passed around. But the guy who recorded it has died. And I had heard about this tape, and I, I was able to get a copy of it 30 years ago um, and wrote a story about it for Rolling Stone. Um, and nothing ever happened. It never came out, but I still have it now. And because all the, all the major players around it are, are, are you know, unreachable or passed away, my lawyer says, you know what? You now own the rights of this concert, unbelievably. So it's an so how first many songs high-quality are involved, Steve, how many songs recording. are involved in it? How many, songs are, how many songs are There's involved? There's seven acoustic blues songs, and then I found two more in the process of doing my research and figuring out where the tape came from. Um, okay. when, I, when I first got it, I was so excited. I called Don DeVito at Columbia Records, who was the head of A&R at the time. This was 87. And I said, Don, you're not going to believe what I have, because I knew that nothing like that had ever come out. And he, he said, oh, my God. He said, come over tomorrow at 1 o'clock. We'll set up a meeting in the whole A&R room, and, and you'll play for the whole staff. So I went over there, and I played it for him, and it was like stunned silence. And he said, we'd like oh. to cut a deal with you. We want to release this. And I said, this is at the time, 30 years ago. I said, look, I, I, I know enough about music law that I don't own the rights to this. I, I can't cut a deal with you. Um, he said, what are you here for? He said, we thought you'd want to do a deal. I said, well, I thought you'd like to hear it. He said, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, I've got a meeting at Rolling Stone to play with my editor, and, and uh, maybe I'll do a story on it for Rolling Stone. And then I, I was able to solve the mystery where it came from. And uh, it's amazing. And it's from before... Uh, you know, two years before the Beatles. Imagine it's 1962, and she speaks between songs and introduces these songs with such reverence when she talks about songs by people like Lonnie Johnson and, and Bessie Smith. To hear her speaking voice at 19 mm. in 1962 is just truly remarkable. It's as exciting as hearing, this, hearing her sing in such a wow. pure voice before you know, drugs and alcohol changed her voice and, oh and developed that God. rasp. It's, just, it's amazing. Do you think you can so, do something with it? Yes, I, I believe I can. Uh, and, and at the time, her estate wanted it out. Laura Joplin thought it was such high quality, they wanted it out, but it never came wow. out. Wow. Uh, they, they used to say no to everything, but they said yes yeah. to this. But it never did come out. Oh. Oh and, and now it might. And uh, there are enough you know, acoustic stations now that, that focus in just on that kind of music that I think would give it sense. It's not rock and roll in, in the slightest, but it's brilliant acoustic blues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a couple Great. of songs also that were, were backed by a guitarist named Steve Mann that she did live, who passed away a few years ago, that also never been released. So I've got nine songs now, like 26 and a half minutes. That's great. The earliest known high-quality Janis Joplin live performance. You should, go, you should go with that because it's so different. You know what I'm saying? It's a different thing. You know what I'm saying, Steve? Mm-hmm. You definitely go with it. Go, go for it. Go for well, it. Well, it's, it's thrilling to listen to. And, and, and I think she'd think it'd be cool if I was involved in that because she was my first interview. Oh my God! Yeah. That's and amazing. Tra- and you know, Tracy I told, Nelson I was, was the telling- opening act that night. By the way, Tracy Nelson was the opening act that night, and she wound up being in my video. And I've been friends with Tracy for like almost fifty years. <laughs> That's and she was great. the opening That's act on that show. Amazing. 
from the you know, I was telling Steve, I was telling Steve about Bernard having a bunch of unreleased um, Janis oh, Joplin yeah. music before Bernard, um, you know, went to the next place, and I know that yeah, he turned it over to Bernard the family. I know have, it's a, yeah, Bernard had all of these tapes, Steve, that Holly and I know about. But the problem with it, I mean, he had stuff that's unreal, but uh, there's so many artists. Unreally, yeah. But he had a problem with legality. See, that was the right. problem. He always told me this. He couldn't put these albums out because of legality. That's the problem that he had. You know what I'm saying? Well, here, here's the interesting thing with my thing. At the time that I was you know, trying to find out where this tape came from, a label named Relics Records was trying to release it. And they were already in discussion with Bob Gordon, who was Janice's lawyer at the time, to release it. Right. And then I contacted Bob Gordon, and I said, are you aware there may be an, an earlier rendition of this recording? And it turns out mine was an earlier generation copy than what they had. So they cut off negotiations with Relics, and they, would, they prevented them from releasing it. So mine was an earlier generation copy. So oh, that right. alone um, makes it – it frees up the, the rights issue right there. Let yeah. someone find an early generation one that I have. I don't think you'll be right. able to find one ever. Yeah. So Relics didn't get to release yeah, theirs because theirs, theirs, was a co- theirs was, had more distortion. You know, it was compared mm-hmm. by, uh, by Elliot Mazur in the studio for, for noise levels and distortion levels, and he said, yours blows away. Um, the one they're trying to release, it's much clearer. Uh, mm. Theirs sounds like a 15th generation copy on a bad you know, cassette duping machine. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, they, so they, they prevented them from releasing it. And I think now the time well, is right. that's crazy. To put it that out. That was mm-hmm. the time. That was the time. Yeah, definitely. No, I know, Spencer. I know it's six o'clock. Did you? Can you stay on, or do you have to I go? Have and I know Steve. And I'll stay on for another five ten minutes. Oh, cool. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, tell, and I'll tell you a funny Steve, story. I know you said, Spencer. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Um, go ahead, Steve. Miles Davis was playing oh. uh, occasionally, at, you know, as a surprise at McKell's, and uh, once in a while he, because he, he was friends with the owner Pat McKell, and. She gave me his home phone number. I always wanted to interview Miles Davis. She gave me his home phone number, and I decided to call him. In, in like the, this is about the late seventies or something to try to talk him into doing an interview with me. And I recorded the conversation. And for like six or seven minutes, I'm trying to get Miles Davis to do an interview with me, and he's telling me, you know, I, I need five thousand dollars to do an interview. You know, and I said, when have you gotten five thousand dollars to do an interview? He said, Playboy. I said, when was that? He said, the fifties. I said, well, they don't pay anymore. No one pays for interviews. And, and, you know, we're going back and forth, uh, you know, almost arguing about the fact that, I, I, you know, I've got an assignment to put you on the cover of Musician Magazine, but they're not going to pay you, but will you do the interview? And he, he hung up on me without even saying goodbye. It's so funny. Oh I've, got a, I've got a tape of Miles Davis hanging up on me because he was demanding $5,000 to do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> it's the funniest thing. That's so I took a shot and called thing. Miles and, you know, <laughs> what the hell, what do I got to lose? <laughs> That is I, so I, funny. You should, i got to figure out how people can hear it, like on Facebook. I want people to be able to listen to it because it's so funny. Oh, wow. Great. You can upload it. And you know what I wanted to say again really quick to everyone? If you missed the beginning of the show, it will be available on iTunes afterwards and also on demand as a podcast on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio under the Indie Cafe. Um, you know what I wanted to say was um, you can upload it, I think, or make a you could make it into a YouTube video and put it down, upload the audio and then put an image right. with it and then right. do it that way. That's a good idea. Got time for one Great. more quick yeah. story? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. After I, be, I, was, I was a writer for about 20 years and, and wanted to do something else but still stay in the music business, so I decided to become a concert promoter. 
Uh, and that way I was, I was going to be able to take care of everyone's personal appearances in New York and give them the best concert experience they could have, give them, get them the most press, the best sound, treat them the best, get them everything they want in the dressing room, uh, and pay them the most money. Um, just you know, take, really take care of artists that way and work with them. So I became the concert promoter at Tramps, the talent buyer, for 10 years. And um, one day I got a phone call, and we got a bunch of phone calls like this from people wanting to rent the club out to do video shoots for artists. And I got a call one day from Jonathan Demme's assistant asking a million questions about availability and stage size and PA and you know, wanting to rent the venue for a video shoot and you know, never discussing who the artist is. And, and after about 15 minutes on the phone with him, and we, we worked out everything. Uh, it was all agreeable. I picked the dates, and I said, oh, who, by the way, who is the video for? And he goes, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and, you know, Bruce is one of my favorite artists of all time. You know, it could have been some irrelevant little band that I didn't care about. I mean, it took my breath away. And he says, you can't tell anybody because if word gets out, he's going to cancel. You know, you're, 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 you can come and have a guest, and the owner can come and have a guest, but we're going to have our own audience of 400 people there from his fan club. So I was happy to get one guest, and, you know, the owner got one guest, but you couldn't tell anybody. And then the night before, when they were setting up uh, the run-through, and it was just the crew and Jonathan Demme there, uh, no band or anything, he says to me, you know, we're having a bit of a problem getting a- enough people. We, we don't have 400. Uh, we only have about 300. Can you invite 100 of your friends? This is the night before. Can you think you can invite 100 of your friends? I said, yeah, I think so. So at the last minute, I called 100 of my friends and said, guess what? You're going to get to see Bruce Springsteen perform at a club. And it changed their life to get to see him in a tiny club. And he, not only did he do Murder Incorporated, the video song, but went back in the past and did like a dozen great old songs like Badlands and Spirit in the Night and all those great old songs. Instead of retreating to the dressing room, you know, when they right. changed film and hiding out, they stayed on stage and used that time to go and do old songs. Oh. And it was great. It was unbelievable. Ooh. And that was the first time in seven years that the E Street Band got back together and played together. Because from, from 87 to 95... Um, you know, he, he temporarily stopped using the E Street Band. And that was the first time that Nils Lofgren and Bruce and Little Steven were all on the stage at the same time. And, and you know, he said it that night, this is our first, he said, this is our first show together in eight years. And mm-hmm. it was that Murder Incorporated video shoot at Tramps. Wow. And what wow. an amazing experience. And, and, um, and we, had a know, great, we had a great PA then, but they brought in a, like a million-dollar PA. And we had a great PA, but they brought in a million-dollar PA. They made that place sound like a recording studio. It was breathtaking how great the sound was. Mm. Why don't you tell our listeners about your photograph of Bruce that you told me about that was going to be on the cover of Time? Well, I was also a photographer uh, from the 70s on to make extra money. Um, and I went to the bottom line shows, uh, you know, as a critic. And I photographed Bruce on the first night of that five-night historic bottom line show. And I got a color photo of Bruce that, that to this day he said is his favorite photograph that anyone's ever taken of him. It's a gorgeous close-up uh, colorful shot of him with a huge grin on his face. And when he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek that fall, I submitted my photo to Time magazine, to both of them, actually. And I got a call one day, a few days after that, congratulating me by Time magazine, saying, we've selected your photo to be the cover of Time magazine. Uh, You're going to get paid $750, which was a fortune to me at the time, because I got $175 to interview Mick Jagger for Rolling Stone, believe it or not. Mm. That's all. And that was like five months' rent to me. And I told all my friends i told my parents i got the cover of time magazine and what a huge thing that was for for a young photographer can you imagine the cover of time right unbelievable so then the next day they called me back and they said um unfortunately we found out that newsweek is also putting them on the cover and they're also using a photo so we can't take the chance that they're using we're using a similar photo to theirs so we're going to go with an illustration so sorry 
And I said, oh. look, I've been to Newsweek. I know what photo they're using. They've selected a Mary Alfieri photo that's totally different from mine. He's looking in the opposite direction. The lighting is completely different. In my photo, he's wearing a hat. In their photo, he's not. The photos couldn't be more dissimilar. And they said, we'd love to believe you. We'd love to trust you. Can't take a chance. And they went with an illustration. And as, oh. the, first, and as, a, as, as the, the ultimate insult, they did an illustration of my photo and didn't pay me anything. What? That sucks. They, they did a that drawing sucks. of my photo. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy, Spencer? <laughs> yeah, I know. Howie, let me ask you a question. Uh, can you sue? Uh, not now, yes. of course, but I, I didn't yes. think of it at the time. Could I didn't think of it at the time. Yeah. I, was, I, was ang- I was angered by that. Oh, um, but, you know, also, little, little, intellectual little known. Intellectual property right. Little known, Cashbox was also putting him on the cover of that same. It was, it was Time, Newsweek, and Cashbox. You know, Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World were the main industry publications, and Cashbox was also looking for a photo of Bruce for their cover. So I gave it to Cashbox, and they put it on the cover. And if you compare oh, the great. three covers, mine blows away both Time and Newsweek. And he made I the cover of Cashbox. Wow, cool. And uh, I, I promised insane. Holly that I would mail her a copy of that photo. I actually sent her <laughs> an email. <laughs> the photo. I'm going to send her it's my 14 print. amazing. She can hang it on her wall. Print. I will. I will, <laughs> along with my Oh, Steve, you, you better send junk. me one, too. I'll send you one also. You will. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to send If Holly one. likes it, I'm going to like it, too. Oh, you're going to love it. Bruce said it's his favorite now, photo. Even he, Bruce said it's his favorite photo, even though he's got a zit. And really? He pointed out a pimple he had right near his left eye. Pretty funny. Wow. Yeah, but it's a great <laughs> picture. It's such a great I picture. It. It, shows his it. True, it shows believe, his oh. true spirit. Oh, you yeah. Know? Oh, great shot. Really great. Yeah, it's important. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it was from, like, from 10 feet away, right in front of the stage at the bottom line, opening night of that five-night run in August 75. I took a bunch amazing. of them. amazing. Yep. And I saw a lot of your other pictures, too. They're really amazing. And how you met John Lennon at the at – the, what was it? Which theater was that? Fillmore. Again. Was it the Fillmore? Fillmore. I, I was, I was oh, 20 God. years old. And we have time to like? tell one more story, Spencer. Yeah, one more story with John Lennon. Yeah, it's crazy. John Lennon played the Fillmore. Uh, well, it's a surprise, if you, if you recall, with Frank Zappa. Remember the Frank Zappa, John Lennon, famous jam session? Yeah, I heard it, about it. Right, well, it came time. out on an album called Sometime in New York by John Lennon, but it was a Frank Zappa show. And I wasn't even going to the show. I lived in Philadelphia at the time. But we drove two friends of ours, or two roommates of mine, up to New York to drop them off at the concert. And we, we just hung out in Greenwich Village that night. We were going to drive them back home. They had tickets. We didn't for the late show of Frank Zappa. So after the concert, we go pick up my friend, uh, my friend Randy in Maryland. Uh, and we, we pulled up to the side of the Fillmore. They'd gone to the late show at 4 o'clock in the morning when the show was ending. And we pulled up to the side door entrance, the backstage entrance on 6th Street, and this girl comes running over to us near the end of the show, and she, she points out this long black limousine. She says, you, you know, you see that limousine? You know whose limousine that is? And I said, it's probably Frank Zappas. She said, no, it's John Lennon's, and he's in there singing right now. <laughs> and we put our ear to the door, and I couldn't, we could hear John Lennon. I couldn't believe it. We're pounding on the door trying to get in. They're not going to let us in. You know, They only opened the doors after the whole show was over, and we rushed in. The lights were already up, and everybody had left the stage. And I run into Randy and Marilyn walking up the aisle, and, and Randy says, he says, I know, I know I'm tripping on LSD, but I think I just saw John Lennon. <laughs> oh, God. I, I said, you just did, you know, and, and I'm jealous. You know? So they went across the street to get pizza, and, and I had just started becoming a photographer at that point in 71. And Jim Marshall had had 
a bunch of his photos in the lobby of his incredible portraits of people like, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Miles Davis and, and everybody. And I wanted to study his photos. So I hung out in the lobby for like 20 minutes staring at his photos. Um, and everybody had left the theater. And then I wanted to explore the theater because I'd only been there like once or twice before that. And I, saw, I walk into the main theater and I see all the way down front there's a group of like six or eight people just sitting there talking and, you know, figure, figure it's a road crew exchanging tour stories. So I walk all the way down to the first few rows and I plop down into a seat next to this group of people. I turn to my left and I'm sitting next to John Lennon. Wow. He's sitting there exchanging <laughs> tour stories with the roadies. And Yoko, Yoko is there. And, and I, that took my breath away. And thank God I didn't have to say anything. That that split second because he was involved in the conversation. So I gathered my thoughts after a minute or two, and I tapped him on the shoulder and meekly asked him if if he thought that there might be a time where we could do an interview. I told him I was a young rock critic, and he said sure. And he said he, he stood me up and put his arm around my shoulder and he walked me a few rows away and sat me down and he said, "Let's do it right now. What do you want to know? Go." <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't, didn't have, have a, a recorder. I, I didn't have a pen. Didn't have a tape recorder. Didn't have oh anything. My God. And uh, but fortunately, I knew enough about the Beatles' history and 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 his career, and I was able to wing it. And and I said, my first question was, first of all, this isn't your show. What are you doing here? You know, this is the Frank Zappa show. Why are you here? Um, and he said that Howard Smith, a writer for The Voice, thought that he would enjoy meeting Frank Zappa, and he and he put the two of them together and brought him down to the show. Oh. And uh, I said, so you just met Frank Zappa tonight? And he said, yeah. He said, never met him before. And I said, wow, what were your impressions on meeting Frank Zappa for the first time tonight? And he thought for a second, and he said, he wasn't as ugly as I thought he was going to be. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that is so and then, funny. And then two years later, when I got to interview Frank Zappa for the first time, and I told him that story, and he had the advantage of knowing what Lennon had said. And I, I asked Frank Zappa what his first impressions on meeting John Lennon were that night, and he thought for a second, and he said, he was cleaner than I thought he was going to be. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know, how to John, this is a John Lennon album where he's in his overalls, you know. Incredible, incredible. So, and I, and I asked John if he enjoyed himself, and he said, absolutely. I said, well, why, do you, why don't you do more things like this? He said, I can't. He said, there's absolute hysteria, you know, around me wherever I go, you know. It's just, it's, it's impossible. Um, because, you know, security, there was only like one or two security people for every show, and you couldn't, you know, a Beatles just can't show up and, and do stuff unless it's top secret or at the last second. And he, you know, or even play anywhere, basically. Um, so he did these surprise shows at Elephant's Memory, and, and, uh, but anyway, you know, that was at the time when he'd just written a song about Paul McCartney. They were at their each other's throats, and he wrote a song about Paul called How Do You Sleep? Remember that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I told know him, that I, you one. Know, I, I cracked a joke, and I told him, I just got the new Paul McCartney album. I wanted to know if he wanted to come over to my apartment and listen to it with me. And he said, I think I have. So I shook That's his hand, and, thanked, and, and I thanked God. him for a few minutes. you know. And, and then 20 years later, in 1996, uh, at Tramps, I, did, I went up doing a benefit with Yoko Ono and, and, and Sean Lennon and Chibo Mato. And I'd never met Yoko before that night. And this is 25 years after that night that I'd met John Lennon. I reminded, and I told Yoko that I was there that night. She didn't remember me, but she remembered that night, obviously, because uh, she was there. And I said, yeah, I was right. there, and I got to talk to John for a few minutes that night. And uh, so I've known Yoko since we did a benefit in 96 at Tramps. And then, you know, now that's that's amazing. See, that, that's amazing. That's just, that's just so cool. I mean, it's kind of like when you're I in I couldn't Yoko, believe you know, that. You know, Steve, when you were like, I, I, I did trade ads for Imagine album, you know, with Alan, with Alan Steckler. And, right. Uh, so you know Alan. my life. But, but when you're in Yoko's family, it's like a trip. It's kind of, I can't even describe what it's like. It's like, I, she really, she really likes 
people that are in oh, yeah, I know. that unit, right, Steve? And uh, she sent me this incredible photograph when I sent her our 45 book. You know, she's really a really nice, and people get the wrong impression of her. You know that. I mean, they think that she's, you know, because of her background. But she, and she holds the torch for John purely, absolutely purely for John's life. Yeah, so I, I really miss work. John. Yeah, and yeah. I'm so so thankful to have met him for a few minutes that night. Yeah, you know there, there are four there are four artists in our video that have passed away since the inception, and a couple actually oh, really? came who, out. Who and you know because of the focus is on mostly artists, you know in the oh. '60s, '70s, you know the legend, the, the absolute legends. That's mm. going to be happening more and more, and it, it just yeah. you know it's just so sad when that happens. And we've lost already Paul Kantner. Uh, a month All after right. I took his photo for the for the video, he di he died. Um, oh, Butch Trucks passed away after the video came out, um, original drummer of the Allman Brothers, and also right. Buckley Zydeco passed away. And we lost one of, my, one of my best friends, a remarkable drummer for the Skeletons named Bobby Lloyd Hicks, who was mm -hmm. in the video. Are you familiar with the Skeletons? No, Professor? I did not. Uh, They're considered the, the NRBQ of Springfield, Missouri. They're an wow. unbelievable roots rock That's band. Right. They are roots I did rock work gods. For, you know, I did work for NRBQ. I did promotional work with Michael Lembo. Lembo. Yep. Adam. Well, yeah. when when Tommy Ardolino died of cancer about five years ago, the only drummer that could fill his shoes was Bobby Lloyd Hicks, the drummer of the Skeletons, and he he filled in for wow. a couple of years for for Tommy Ardolino when Tommy died of cancer in an RBQ, and then Bobby got sick and he died a few months ago, um, and we lost Bobby. And Bobby's in the video. Oh. I put him right next to NRBQ because he, the last thing he did was was replace Tommy Ardolino and NRBQ's drummer when Tommy died of cancer. But you need you should Google this guy. Wow. They've got an amazing yeah, I'm check song them called, out. Thank you. They got a great I, song I, called "Out of My Way," and the full title of this it's of uh, it is "Out of My Way." I'm in a hurry. Wow. It's an amazing you are. Song. Out, out of my way. way. I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> and and you need, remember the old Peter Paul Mary song called "Very Last Day." Yeah. You know Peter Paul Mary's I, "Very I, Last Day." I've heard it. Are you familiar what? with "Very Last Day" by Peter Paul Mary Spencer? I've no, not really. It. It's Spencer. really funny you said that. There's an so, incredible version of them doing it at Carnegie Hall. It's a it's a folk classic. It's I think it's the best song they ever wrote. Really? But it's a folk song. The Skeletons turned it into a punk rock classic. Wow. Go to YouTube and listen, listen to the Skeletons. That out, man. That listen really to the Skeletons cool. do Very Last Day, the Peter Paul Man. Listen to what they turned that song into. Go to YouTube, The Skeletons Very Last Day. It's mind blowing. Well when you the group I work with and really love, by the way, then I'm a, I'm there, you know what I'm saying? Yep. And we and we also lost Lou Whitney, the leader of the Skeletons, about two years ago. Uh, oh, and really? I have some great recordings of the Skeletons in trance, and I'm giving them to the families of the musicians. Uh, so if they make any money, they can have all the profits. So we recorded four of their shows at Tramps like 25 years ago that are unbelievable. Wow. And and they can put them out, or I'll put them out on my label. I just want those guys to benefit for the for uh, from anything made from those recordings. Mm. I think that's amazing. You're doing such amazing things for people, Steve, and. The yeah. We Are Not Afraid and all the different things and the breaking news and all the great stories that you've been able to tell today. I mean, well, My favorite thing of all time was to be able to share great music with people. Tell them about it, play it yeah. for them, turn them on to it mm -hmm. as a writer, as a, as a concert right. promoter. Just spread the word. Whenever you hear something that changes your life, you want it to be able to change somebody else's life and have it be something they're going to listen to for decades and go, wow, thanks so much for turning me on to this. I can't, stop. I can't thank you enough. I get that a lot of times from people. And, you know, when I would do shows at Tramps, 
with little-known artists who I was a big fan of, but some of the critics didn't even know. I would call the critics and say, look, come to, come to see this incredible artist at Tramps. You may not know who they are, but I, I guarantee you're going to love them. And they would wind up writing stories about people they'd never even heard of before. And these are people from the New York Times and Daily News and even Rolling Stone. You know, people like James Carr and people like Howard Tate, you know, mm. uh, or, or people like that, and uh, or, or the Morels or the Skeletons or, or the Saw Doctors, you know, who, who were totally unknown in America before I brought them over from Ireland. Mm. That's know. amazing. Steve, this is just such such cool stuff. Steve, what is it that you're doing this weekend? Are you doing any kind of project or anything this weekend? This weekend? Uh, not not mm-hmm. necessarily anything this weekend. What do you got going? <laughs> oh, there's a lot going on. Spencer, going to we got, Hey, listen, we got tonight. Steve Weitzman on. I'm going to tell you, I'll be able to sleep tonight really good. I know. This is like... Right, Holly? Steve, right, Holly? Steve, uh, Steve needs to write a book. He really does. I don't he know what we would... He needs a book, and he needs to get the Janis Joplin album out, really. Absolutely. Those oh, are, yeah. I agree with you, know, you Holly. One, one thing about the Janis right, Joplin album I forgot to mention. Do you remember a, a blue album, double album, that Columbia put out in 75, just called Janis, five years after she died? See, I don't know about that. Okay. It's never been put on CD, ever. But it was a double really? album, and sides three and four of that record were called Early Performances. Okay? Wow. Wow. Um, and they're from 64, two years mm. after my show. And, and oh, I have some of the same songs, but the versions they have were so horribly recorded. And the uh-huh. ones that I have blow the quality away of those. And I have some they don't have as well. But they put uh, out a couple of the same songs on that album. It's just called Janice, came out in 75. But, you know, they don't own the rights automatically to Janice Joplin material. They only own anything from 67 on when they signed her. But prior to 67, they got to get in line with anybody else. They don't own automatic uh, rights to her stuff. That album, as Holly and I agree, should be out. You know what I'm saying? You gotta what get album? this out. Mm-hmm. Oh, my, the live show? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right. It turned, I, I was able to solve the mystery thanks to to uh, uh, some musicians that I talked to back then. I interviewed for the piece um, that she was accompanied by by people named Larry Hanks and Roger Perkins at the time. There were people she was playing with in '62, '63. Little known San Francisco Bay Area acoustic players, and also um, Billy Roberts who wound up writing Hey Joe. Oh, my God. He, he was That's friend. amazing. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you see Hey Joe credited, it, it says B. Roberts. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, but, that's story. And, and do you know that he sold the rights to that song when he needed money for $125? That's oh, wow. crazy. He made that song was 125 bucks. Really? He sold it. What an, how you know, disastrous a decision for him. Mm. Unbelievable. Yep. Unbelievable. And, you know, 100 bands have covered it. Oh, right. Got, I mean, that's a classic story you just told that everybody should know. That's incredible. Right, Hal? I mean, that's incredible stuff. I think, I re- I think everything that Steve has spoken about today is classic. It's like totally <laughs> out of the box. Out but, of the by box. The way, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that people are now away. learning a little bit more about Majek Fashek, the artist who, who wrote the song We Are Not Afraid. Um, he is in Nigeria now, but 25 years ago, I was, I was able to get him on Letterman. Believe it or not. Wow. Um, Sheila Rogers is a friend of mine from Rolling Stone days. I used to write stories for her when she was the editor of Random Notes. And I called Sheila one day, and she she was the music director of the Letterman show. And I turned her on to Majek, and she was in, she fell in love with his music, and I was able to get him on Letterman. Um, and if you Google Majek Fashek David Letterman YouTube on YouTube, you'll hear him do a song called So Long on Letterman, and you'll be able to watch him on, on Letterman. And back then. Wow. 
bands were not allowed to play, you know, intact on Letterman. They needed to be backed by Paul Schaefer and Will Lee. You know, they're fine players, but it kind of takes away from the Nigerian reggae aspect of the band. But, you know, it was Paul Schaefer and Will Lee and, and some of the guys from Ajax band. And, and even after the rehearsal, Paul messed up. And at the very, at the last, in the last, like, 30 seconds, you can see that Paul ended the song prematurely. And he knew that he made a mistake. And he, he, if you watch the video of Mechek on, on, on David Letterman on YouTube of the song So Long, you'll see Paul, like, kind of nod to Mechek in an embarrassing way, knowing that he messed up and he ended the song too quick. Oh, before, wow. Before it was supposed to end. Wow. But, uh, you know, Mechek cool. was on Letterman doing this, uh, one of his best songs called So Long from the album um, Spirit of Love that was, was on Interscope. It's now out of print. That's another record, by the way, that I want to put out. Um, oh, it's wow. it's out, been out of print for 20 years, unavailable. And it's an absolute classic. Little Steven produced it and did it all live in the studio. Wow. U2, U2 came down to the studio to watch Mechek record live. Believe it or not, Bono and the Edge came down because Jimmy, Jimmy Iovine had just had done Rattle and Hump for U2, and he, he brought Bono and the Edge down to watch Majek record. Oh. We thought they'd be there for like 15 minutes. They stayed for four hours and watched them record three entire songs. That's were amazing. Amazing. That's so, amazing. So, so when I, I approached Bono to be part of the video, he was already familiar with Majek Fashek from 25 years ago because he had watched Majek record some of the songs for that album. That's an incredible story. So he was very well aware of Majek Fashek. So they can get the song on We Are Not Afraid, the website, yeah. and you yeah, can also get touch with Steve through there. Uh-huh. We Are Not Afraid dot net, and you can hear both versions and purchase either one uh, mm-hmm. for ninety nine cents, or, or both of them for for uh, no, no, either one for a buck twenty nine, or both for a dollar ninety nine. And you can watch mm-hmm. both videos: the shorter one directed by Kevin Godley, and the longer one that Bob Gruen helped me put together. Um, Bono was only in the longer one. He missed the deadline for the first one, like I said. But uh, it's it's a remarkable video, I think, and we're quite proud of it. Yeah, I, I would be. I well, we're we're quite. I'm quite proud of you, Steve. <laughs> well, I couldn't have done it without without all the artists. I mean, they were so helpful. Amazing. And it, 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 I was so overwhelmed by the support from the artistic community mm-hmm. that people wanted to be. Imagine getting an email from Ringo Starr at three o'clock in the morning. Say thanks yeah, for inviting great. me. Glad to be part of your video. Here you go. Good luck, Ringo. That's great. That's <laughs> I've been trying again for seven months, but I never had any indication he wanted to be part of it. You know, I I showed him that, that Brian Wilson did it and the Zombies and and Mark Knopfler and and I never got any response. And out of the blue, I get an email. And in the subject line, it just said Ringo. And you know, a lot of people send emails and saying, you know, thanks for inviting me. We're we're going to pass. We're not going to do it. So I thought, right. okay, Ringo's not going to do this. You know, when I opened it up and I saw he actually did it and sent me a photo and made his own sign. I was blown away. Blown away. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know what? It just There's shows a lot of really. Yeah, it shows you how cool musicians are about benefits and what what it, yep. things mm-hmm. are uh, to help the earth or help people. So that's always a, a great thing. You know what I mean? They, you know the people that want, the people who reject it, you can tell where their mindset is. You know what I'm saying? You know, there are people that said no, and then a year later, yeah. uh, there are people that said no twice, and I wound up getting them for the video. Because, oh you know, they, they needed Incredible. to be convinced, uh, some people. Yeah. They wanted to see it become a bigger thing than it, than it started out to be. Other people jumped in feet first. But, right. you know, I got, I got no's from people that a year later they did it. You know, like Keith Richards and Sting initially right. said no, and, you know, I wound up, and I wound up getting them. Um, That's Elvis great. Costello. That's great. That's you know, great. But, and they wound up doing it. Um, you know. That's good. It's all good. So, it's an endless amount of people that are in this video. I would really encourage anyone that really wants to see something really cool and listen to some music that is beautiful. I think it's a great song, and uh, 
the intention behind we are not afraid is really important and so i would i know that you have a list there you can sign up you can um uh you know get in touch with steve if you have any ideas anybody that wants to maybe do something more with this definitely you know reach out to steve on that um what i wanted to say was it is friday uh and I wanted to say to everyone out there, please don't drink and drive nope. um, because it's, yeah, don't don't drink and drive. It's Friday. Even Any day is a day not to drink and drive, but it's the weekend. And um, you know what I wanted to say to you, Steve, was I loved having you here today because after our conversations this whole week, it's just been, gosh, wow. How did we fit all this in? I don't know. So far. You'll have to edit it down clearly, I guess. Oh, no. Part of of, of the fraction of the stories are in that are really incredible, and there's more. Oh, amazing. And there's there's so much more. There's There's so much more. I'd like to also add that some people request some people to do something nice for someone this weekend. Just do something nice for someone. Yeah, definitely. Good point. Very good. Absolutely. I'm all for that. And that's really nice that you said that, you know, like a random act of kindness and, and, and silent kindness, like not even telling anyone that you did something like, if you know, somebody, you know, needs something, go do, go do it and just do it without letting them know you did it or do something for someone. Like you said, like do something that makes someone smile or brings just joy to their life. Well, you know, one of the best things about the video was that I was able to reconnect mm-hmm. with a bunch of artists that I had previous interactions with maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago that I either interviewed or promoted in concert with and lost touch with, and we reconnected with the video, and now we're like Facebook friends, and we talk a lot now, and, you know, we reconnected. And I'm Facebook friends with people I'd never even met before. I mean, I'm Facebook buddies with people like Brian May and Ian Anderson and people like that. I can't believe oh, yeah, it. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool, and they That's love the video, awesome. and they're so appreciative. And it was a great way to reconnect with a lot of musicians that are really, really important to me in my life and uh, people that were among my favorites of all time or, or that I wrote about or interviewed or promoted concerts with. Hey, so listen, Steve, I've got, I've got to say goodbye because I've got to no run problem. down to Tribeca Film Festival. I've got to cover something. But it was a pleasure and extended my time because you're a wonderful person and, uh, and a great friend, and I love what you're doing. And, Holly, thanks for having me on again. You're welcome. Sure. Thank you for bringing Steve to the show, Spence. Oh, thank That's you. Awesome. And, and listen, I love you mm-hmm. both, and uh, rock and roll, and uh, have a good have night. Fun at the, it, have fun at the cinema. And Thanks, when you're down, say hello to Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Robert De Niro. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell him you know me. Know. Tell him you know me. Because he's in my video. <laughs> he dropped. He's he dropped. gone. He, he made a hasty <laughs> retreat. He, I guess he had to go really fast. No, he had a film he had to go to tonight. And um, I know that you had said you only had certain time. You know, I have two more songs that you chose. Yep. Um, I'd like to, what I'm going to play is, uh, I'm going to play both of them since we have time when we end the show. We got um, time. I'm going to play, yeah, we're, I'm going to play Walk, Don't Run. And um, I'm also going to play All Day and All of the Night. I'm going to play both of those. Yeah. I think that's the greatest rock song ever recorded. Yeah. I'll I'll put that one up against any rock song ever recorded, All Day and All the Night by the Kinks. Really? 
Absolutely. Now, tell me, did you work with them at all? Did you ever do anything with them? No, um, I, but I did promote a, Ray da- a, da- a Dave Davies concert. He plays the guitar on that song. We did a, a Dave Davies concert. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kinks didn't tour for many, many years because Ray and Dave hated each other. And, right. You know, there, there was bad blood between them for a while. So I couldn't, couldn't ever promote the Kinks. Uh, but I did do a Dave Davies concert when he was at Tramps. Uh, no, actually, at the Village Underground, we did a Dave Davies concert, and he did all day and all the night that show, which I would love hearing him do it live. Oh, I bet. Oh no, I he, bet. I mean, he did obviously all the Kink stuff, you know, because he was the guitar player on it. Uh, and uh, but I never got to work with Ray, although I met I met Ray, um, but uh, never got to work with the Kinks or with Ray. But now, I, what know, about my... Walk Don't Run? You have a story behind that too. Well, they were the first. My first favorite band, and up until 1960, when I was like 10 years old, my favorite musicians were—they were all individuals, like Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and 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 people like that, Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, but the first band that I fell in love with was because of the guitar sound was the Ventures, and and they became the the most important instrumental band of all time. And Walk Don't Run was their first breakthrough song in 1960. Then they did another version of it in 1964 called Walk Don't Run 64. They had another hit with it four years later, but that that song just devastated me how great it was, and I, I fell well, in love with it's the classic song, the sound of surf song. It's yep. a classic it's, surf song. It's one of the three I greatest mean, surf songs of all time. Walk don't run. Oh, it is. It is. You know, then you got, Definitely. Then you got, I mean, then you got pipeline by the by the by uh, yeah. the the, the uh, then you got wipe and you got wipeout pipeline by the Santels, yep. and you got wipeout by the Safaris, and then you got walk don't run by the Ventures. Those are the three greatest. Uh, nothing nothing else is even close to those three. That's amazing. Well, which one should I play first and which one should we why don't we play um why don't we play Walk Don't Run? Okay. And then I'll end and then I'll end the show right after that with All Day and All of the Night cuz uh that's a great song to start the weekend with and uh I want to thank you so much for, you know, being here today because it was really important. And after speaking with you this week and talking to you and hearing so much of your 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 knowledge of so many things that are important that people need to know about, it was really important that we had the time to really talk about things. Did we miss anything that you wanted to add before we end the show today? Uh, not really. Uh, we we told a lot of great stories. And, you have and, anything uh, that sticks out in your mind that you want to talk about? Uh, nothing other than I really hope people will watch the video, the We're Not Afraid video. Um, yeah. And uh, appreciate that, you know. But uh, just enjoy life and, and go out and support live music. Mm, yeah, absolutely. As, as much as and you can. do a random... Two random acts of kindness this weekend, as Steve said. And, and again, happy Earth Day. And again, please, guys, it's the weekend. You know, be aware of your surroundings. And uh, also just, you know, try not to um, get yourself all stressed out with all this crazy stuff going on in the world. Just be in the moment and be and, here and, and now. Don't be, and, don't be, and don't be afraid. And don't be afraid. That's right. And with that, we're I'll play. I'm gonna play your favorite song. Well, I'm gonna play the the venture song first, and then I'll end with the other one. And with that, thank you so much, Steve. Cool. If you want to hang on, you can hear it. Sure, I'll hang on. It'll I, be I great. Can't hear those two songs enough. 
You can, oh, it's awesome. And, and for everyone, again, if you missed the show, it'll be available on iTunes. And, again, I want to thank Spencer Drake for being here today with us. And also, Steve, thank you so much for being here. And, again, make sure um, if you missed it, download it, and go to wearenotafraid.net, and you can go there and listen to the song, buy the song, watch the video, watch the long video because that's the one that uh, Bob Gruen's in and, uh, and it's a little bit longer. Bob, Bob's in both. Yeah, and Bono. Yeah. Uh, Bob's in both. Oh, that's amazing. That's just yep. so amazing. And yep. I want to thank you so much for being such a voice for all the people too, Steve. My pleasure. I really do. It's and an honor. That, yep. You're an amazing, amazing person and a gift to the world. Definitely. And with that, we want to say again, happy Friday guys and, uh, go for it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We love it. Love it. Bye.